What you see up on the screen is a photo of a very expensive combine used for harvesting certain types of grain. This photo was taken in the aftermath of a very powerful tornado that picked up the combine, mangled it, and threw it back to the ground. I'm sure Joe can guess what state that happened in. New versions of these machines rent for up, or sell for upward of seven to eight hundred thousand dollars. So if that one was yours, you would probably be interested in salvaging whatever you could from it, and your insurance company would be interested in salvaging whatever could be salvaged. Now this particular combine is so beat up that if it weren't for the paint scheme, you wouldn't even know who made it. But let's just say that you knew it was this model. Looks a lot better. Huh? Let's say that your insurance company knew a mechanic who had amazing skills and a whole lot of parts, and that mechanic told you that he could fix your combine. That he could put it back together, put some new parts on it, and make it as good as new, actually better than new, because there had been updates. There were there was new technology that he could put into it. So during the long interval that your combine then would be in the shop, how would you know what to expect when the rebuild was done? Well, your expectations would be based on what the combine looked like before the tornado, right? And how it worked before it got mangled and tossed around. And if you had to do without it for a really long time, the knowledge of how it worked for you before and the prospect of it working even better would give you cause to persevere in waiting for it to be finished. Now that's a very flawed illustration, but hopefully it will help to get a point across, a very helpful point. Some of the most important things that God tells us in the Bible about what we have to look forward to about what eternity is going to be like for His redeemed people are best understood when we have a good grasp of what got broken in the first place. To understand the breadth and the magnitude of God's revealed plan of redemption as He intends for us to understand it, it helps a lot if we first understand what the Bible says about His original design for His creation. What it was like before it got Mangled because of our sin. It also helps if we understand what the Bible tells us about how that original state of affairs was impacted. Now please understand, I am not saying that God's finished work of redemption is going to look just like Eden. In fact, I believe that when He redeems and makes all things new, it's going to look a lot better than Eden. But over and over in the Bible, God gives us promises regarding what we will lay hold of in eternity. And as He does so, He keeps going back to the same themes that He presents at the very beginning of the creation, of the, the course of all things in the creation narrative. There's a reason that the Bible starts with His design. Knowing that design enhances our hope. 
As we talked about last week, the hope of the believer is very, very important for living as God's people in a cursed world while we await the fullness of His redemption. This morning we're going to take a big picture look at two things. First, at God's original design, His original intention with regard to four critical elements of His creation, four aspects of His creation. Then we'll look at what God says happened to those four key design elements when Adam sinned and God cursed what He had made. Then beginning next week, we'll look at what the Bible, we'll start looking at what the Bible says about God's redesign. About what His creation is going to be like when He finishes redeeming all that is now subject to the curse. And as we do so, for the next several weeks, we will see that those, these same four key aspects of His design come up over and over. Now some of you may see this content as kind of theological and dry. I hope not, because I find it amazing to look back at what God intended, what God designed, and to see as, as we go through the unfolding of His plan of redemption in Scripture, how He keeps going back to those things in order that our minds will go forward to what's waiting for us. The four elements that we're going to look at are place, image, agency, and relationship. Now you might come up with a, a list that's somewhat different than those, but I believe when you put it all together, everything kind of falls under these categories. First, let's look at place, the heavens and the earth. In God's design for the place, He created the cosmos, everything, the universe. And He created the cosmos as a place to show off. A place for Him to show off. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, "...the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of His hands." There are many verses like that. Job 38 and 39 if you read that passage where God is saying to Job, where were you when I? Over and over, God is, He is declaring the majesty, the magnitude, the power of what He has done in creation. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 tells us that even God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men who reject Him are without excuse. All men have seen God show off in His creation. But God created a special place in that cosmos, a place for His image-bearer to dwell. And He called that place Eden. It was a place of perfect harmony. God created man's physical being from the dust of the earth. Genesis 2.7 So man actually came from the place. The name that God gave to man was Adam, which is a variation of a Hebrew word that means ground or earth. Man's connection with the place was pervasive and profound. Man proceeded from and was created in unhindered harmony with His dwelling place. There was no resistance from nature against man. 
It was a place of harmony. It was a place of abundant provision. Because all of God's creation was blessed and good and there was no opposition from nature, there was marvelous abundance of provision for both man and beast. There was no decay, no corruption, no death. So when Adam planted 50 seeds, he got 50 plants. And they were all healthy. He and Eve didn't need pesticides or fungicides. And along with all those tasty plants, God provided an abundance of fresh, flowing water in the form of four mighty rivers that flowed right through the garden. Man had everything in great abundance. He lacked nothing. It was a place of harmony, a place of abundant provision, and it was a place designed so that in it man would honor God. I'm just going to talk briefly at this point about this because we're going to talk more about image and agency in a moment. God did not just, did not put man into this place just to hang out. <laughs> he put him there with an assignment and that assignment was a stewardship from God. It was very much tied both to God and to the place. Man was to be the instrument through which God exercised perfect dominion over His marvelous creation. It was a place for man to honor God. It was a place for man to know and enjoy God. Not only was it a place of abundant physical provision, it was a place of abundant beauty. It was a place to be enjoyed. There were no poisonous plants. There weren't even any ugly plants. <laughs> every plant and every tree in the garden was pleasing to the sight and good for food. And every bit of, the, of this provision, every bit of this beauty, was designed by God to point man's attention back to God, to the Creator. God's love, His benevolence, His kindness, His power, His sovereignty, His majesty, His beauty were displayed everywhere that man looked. But it wasn't just a place in which man could see and enjoy the evidence of, evidences of God's character. It was a place in which man could commune with God Himself. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. It was also a place in which the man and the woman could know and enjoy each other. To share together in all the things that God had so graciously given to them, including one another. And most especially to enjoy together the blessing of communion with God Himself. Again, more on that when we get to the relationship. I just want to point out that the place is the, is the focal point. It's the location of all of these amazing things that God has done. Now that was God's grand design for the place, but as soon as Adam sinned, God imposed the curse of death on His image bearers. And that death extended to the place itself. God said to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. The curse of death brought enmity and disharmony between man and the glorious place in which God had put him. Now, man discovered toil 
sweat, thorns, and thistles. He encountered resistance from the place, from God's creation. Man was cast out of the garden and he was blocked from ever again having access to the tree of life in his sinful, cursed condition. Under the curse, instead of abundant physical provision, what we get is basic physical provision. We no longer get to eat freely of the produce of the land as God told Adam he could. In fact, if we try to eat freely, we eventually get to have heart surgery. For many in this world, there is barely enough to eat and drink. For some, there simply isn't enough. And some die of malnutrition. Unlike in the garden before sin and the curse entered the picture, and contrary to what some very popular preachers want us to believe, God does not promise abundant physical provision here and now, even to His own covenant people. Often in Scripture, He explicitly promises to meet only the most basic physical needs of His people. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses told God's rebellious people Israel that God had humbled them and had let them be hungry. He had given them a rudimentary portion of food for each day in the form of manna from heaven, just enough for each person for one day, one day at a time. In Matthew 6, Jesus promises that God knows what you need. And what does He say you need? Food and clothing. And that's the whole list. Creation still displays much of the awesome character of God But death, decay, disorder, and corruption are everywhere in the cosmos under the curse. And in the Bible, God takes pains to make sure that we know that. That we are made aware that these things exist in this place because of us. Cursed is the ground because of you. See, creation isn't cursed because it is evil. Creation is cursed because we are evil. There are several chapters in Leviticus that draw careful distinctions between the clean and the unclean. And a lot of times people look at those chapters and they are just in a complete quandary as to what the point of them is. The point of those chapters is actually very simple. It is a declaration of the incompatibility between that which matches up with God's holy character, wellness, life, wholeness, purity, order, and that which matches up with the curse, death, illness, lameness, impurity, corruption, decay like mildew and mold, disorder like mismatched kinds. Those distinctions created for Israel a constant vivid reminder that things in this place, in God's creation, are not presently as they were intended to be. God wants us to know that. Right now, the only place where things are as God intended them to be 
is in His holy presence. And that's what the tabernacle pictured. Men drawing near to God's holy presence. God wants us to know that too. God cursed us and He cursed the place that He had made for us along with everything in it because Adam and every man since Adam who was the pinnacle of God's creation exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And to finish that phrase in Romans 1, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. But God's plan of redemption is going to fix all that grievous damage to the place. The second critical design element impacted by the fall is image. Man made like God. In the creation narrative of Genesis 1, God saved the best for last. Mankind was and still is the pinnacle of God's created order. And there's something radically different said about man in Genesis 1 compared with all the rest of God's creation. Even the highest of all the animals that God made were each created after its kind. But in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God declares that He created man in His own image after His own likeness. Man bore the stamp of God's character, of God's nature, of God's way. He was made like God. All of God's creation showed off God's character and God's nature. But in all of that glorious creation, both in the created heavens and on the earth, the greatest representation of who God is and what God is like isn't the vastness of the universe. It's man. It isn't even angels. It's man. Man manifested God rightly in His creation. Before sin and the curse of sin, man presented an accurate picture of who God is and what God is like. Not a comprehensive picture. It will never, it, it will never be said, even in eternity, that everything that is true of God has become true of man. But what, what was true before the curse is that everything that was true of man was true of God. So what happened to the image under the curse? Is man still a creature like the Creator? Not quite so much. The image of, of God is distorted. It's corrupted in fallen man. God has always known good from evil. But God does only good. At the fall, man became more like God in only one respect. He added to him, it was added to him the personal knowledge of evil. To the, to his original knowledge of only good. But man is enslaved to evil. Blame casting, deception, arrogance, envy, malice, hatred, hostility, murder, and that's just the next two chapters of Genesis after Adam sinned. So is there anything meaningful left of the image of God and man after the fall? 
The Bible says yes. After the great flood, when God judged all of mankind, when Noah and his family came off the ark, God said to Noah, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed for in the image of God he made man. So the image is still somehow continuing. By the way, based on that passage in Genesis 9, do you know what the biblical basis for capital punishment is in cases of murder? It's not deterrence. It's the sanctity of the image of God in man. By God's own declaration. The continuation of some vestige of the image of God in man is also attested. It's confirmed in James chapter 3. James says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Present tense. The image of God continues in man, but it is very badly mangled. Sinful man is a poor representation of God. But God's plan of redemption is going to fix the damaged image of God in man. The third design element is agency. Man as the steward of God's creation. As I said before, God didn't put man into the place, into the garden just to enjoy it, just to hang out. He put him there to manage and to care for it as God's representative. He put man in the garden to be God's steward. Now the word steward is treated as kind of an old school word. We don't use it very much anymore, but it's a really good word. It refers to someone who performs a task on behalf of someone else who has delegated that task. Another word for steward would be agent. Have you ever bought or sold a house and used a real estate agent? We have a couple of really good ones in our congregation. A few. When you do that, you're delegating certain tasks to that person to perform on your behalf. That's what, that's what this is about. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, there are three essential tasks that reveal God's assignment of agency to Adam and Eve. And all three are tied, by the way, to the place. Be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue the earth and rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. In order for man to subdue the earth, to submit all of it to God's management through man, man had to fill it. He had to fill it with people. And by the way, I'd say we did pretty well with that one part of the assignment. <laughs> we pretty well filled up the earth. But the point of filling the earth was so that mankind would have Dominion over all of it as God's agents, God's stewards. God placed Adam into the garden, Genesis 2 verse 5, to cultivate the ground. Tilling, planting, pruning, harvesting, these were all part of the work that God had given man to do on his behalf. During that relatively brief interval in the garden when man rightly represented God and did things God's way, Man got to enjoy the fruits of labor without toil, without resistance from nature, because nature submits to God. 
The problem was never whether creation submitted to God. The problem is us. God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. There was perfect headship and submission in man's exercise of agency under God. Man was fully submitted to God and the earth and everything in it was submitted to man. No resistance. The whole point of the assignment of dominion was that we would manage God's creation on His terms. His way, not ours. That we would nurture and cultivate and use all that He had given to us in that wonderful place for His glory, not for ours. Image and agency are inseparable because in order for men to act as God would in overseeing His glorious creation, we have to think like Him, we have to act like Him, we have to be like Him. What happened to man's agency in God's place over His creation after the curse? Well, the Bible tells us again that God continues to use men as His agents. But we're no longer good and willing agents. When God executed the cataclysmic judgment on the earth in the flood, He used Noah as His instrument to save a small remnant of mankind along with representative samples of all living things. In Genesis 9, after Noah and his family came off the ark, God recapitulated. He, He restated his assignment to man to act as his agent. He said, it says, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should sound familiar. But then he said something that he didn't say in the first round. He said, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. See, now that man is a poor representative and agent of God, nature no longer submits to man willingly. Instead of willing, harmonious submission, it is fear-based submission. Under the curse, man's effectiveness as the agent of God is severely hindered by sin. We rebel and we bristle against the call to submit to God and to exercise dominion on His terms. We find it more attractive to manage God's creation on our terms for our purposes. And that makes us agents of self more than agents of God. But God's plan of redemption is going to restore man's fully submitted agency on God's behalf. Alright, we've considered God's original design concerning place, image, and agency. But the most important piece of God's design for man and for His created order by far is the fourth and final piece and that's relationship. Relationship of man with God and of man with man. When we talked about the place, I briefly pointed out that it was a place for man to know and enjoy God. And it was a place for men and women to know and enjoy each other. Originally for Adam and Eve to enjoy each other. 
The most important cultivation going on in the garden was the cultivation of relationship between man and God and between the man and the woman. The place was designed by God as the location, the sandbox, if you will, of of man's communion with God. I mentioned Genesis 2, verse 7 earlier. It says that God created man's physical being from the dust of the earth. Man was in harmony with his dwelling place. But man's life, man's life didn't come from the dust of the earth. Man's life came directly from God. It says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Life comes only from God and it only comes directly from God. There is no mediator. There is no steward in the giving of life. God is omnipresent. He's completely unlimited by space and time. He can be as many places as He wants to at once. But He has never shared that attribute with man. And I don't don't think He ever will. So if man was going to personally know his Creator, it would be in that place that God would come to know him. In chapter 2, it's clear that personal interaction between God and man in the place was part of God's design. God had management meetings with Adam. Directly with Adam. Right there in the garden. God Himself brought the animals to Adam so that Adam could assign names to each of them. Genesis 2.18 In chapter 3, it's apparent that God was accustomed to walking in the garden, to sharing the same space with Adam and Eve. Surely of all the things that made that place beautiful and wonderful, the presence of God who made the place and who made Adam and Eve themselves was the most beautiful and wonderful of all. And God extended the blessing of relationship and communion beyond the relationship between Himself and Adam. The one and only thing that God declared not good in the creation narrative of chapters 1 and 2 before the fall was when He said it is not good for the man to be alone. God determined to make him a helper corresponding to him. See, throughout all eternity, God had enjoyed perfect love and communion and fellowship in the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And He determined to give Adam a similar communion with one who was made like Adam. A creature of the same kind as Adam. Woman. God's original design for His image bearers was to be God's agents over His creation Together, acting in complete unity of purpose, enjoying the blessing of relationship with one another that reflected God's image. God's design for man's relationship with one another was a beautiful and wonderful design. The highest manifestation of that design was and still is the first one. Marriage. Between one man and one woman. Genesis 2 is not ambiguous about that particular point. 
But as man carried out God's commission to fill the earth, there would be an extended community of people made in the image of God, enjoying relationship with God and with each other without sin. The last verse in the Bible, before the chapter in which sin entered the picture, is Genesis 2, verse 25. And it says simply, And the man and the woman, the man and his wife, were both naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Those three words are so powerful, they are so profound, that it's hard for us to even begin to comprehend them. To the God who looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart, the physical nakedness of Adam and Eve was an outward representation of what was in their hearts. Everything that could be known about Adam and everything that could be known about Eve was laid bare. It was completely unhidden, both to one another and to God. And there was absolutely nothing shameful to be seen in either of them, either by God or by one another. There was no pretense. There was no deception. No malice. No arrogance. No selfishness. Because there was no sin. There was only the image of God. Nothing about the man or the woman was hidden either from God or from one another because nothing needed hiding. And nothing needed hiding. If you go to Genesis 3.21, you'll get the pun. Before Adam sinned as the representative of God, as the representative of all mankind before God, man enjoyed pure, harmonious, unhindered relationship with God and pure, harmonious, unhindered relationship with man, originally between Adam and Eve. Image and agency were holy and perfect. The place was holy and perfect because relationship with God was holy and perfect. Relationship between God and man and between the man and the woman as God's image bearers. The first sin grievously damaged every expression and every facet of both relationships. The first sin brought enmity and disharmony between the man and God and between the man and the woman. Adam and Eve tried in vain to hide themselves from the presence of God as He walked through the garden in the cool of the day. They were naked and they were ashamed. And they were afraid. And their fear was well-founded because of the terrible harm that their sin had done. Their sin and the sin of every man since them. To our relationship with God and to our relationship with each other. Every aspect of God's original design comes back to relationship. Every part of what was damaged by the curse comes back to relationship. Every part of what God must and will redeem comes back to relationship. He intended Relationship between Himself and His image bearers and between His image bearers. Man's agency in the image of God was never meant to be an impersonal matter. God didn't 
hand His creation off to mankind and say, you take care of all this and I'll see you later. He was right there with Adam and Eve. Our representation of God in His creation proceeds from and depends on our relationship with and communion with God and with each other. We can't carry out His assignment if we aren't related to Him. We have to know Him personally, intimately, and rightly in order to be able to represent Him rightly. We have to know each other personally, intimately, and rightly in order for us to be like Him and to represent Him well together. Because that's what He designed. It's no wonder that Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. God cursed the place because the place was supposed to show Him off and to bless our relationship with Him, not to replace Him. When Adam ate from the tree that God had forbidden, the place took the place of God. God cursed the relationship between the man and the woman because He had created that relationship to reflect and to bless man's relationship with Him not to replace that relationship. When Adam followed Eve's lead instead of God's, Adam gave Eve the place of God. God cursed our agency. He frustrated our work in His creation on His behalf from that day forward because in Adam, we used that agency to violate our relationship with Him. We took that over which God had given us dominion and we loved it instead of Him. God's plan of redemption is going to fix both of those broken relationships. Knowing how God designed His creation tells us a lot about where He's going with His plan of redemption. There is a reason that God told us what Eden was like. As we proceed in this series to examine what the Bible tells us about heaven and eternity, the themes that we have touched on today are going to show up over and over and over. We will see that eternity is going to be a lot like Eden, only better. Before I wrap up, I just want to touch on one other thing, and that is how God's grace applies under the curse. My brothers on Wednesday kind of helped help me really think this through. We do not yet live in the redeemed Eden. We live in a world that's still under the curse. But it's very important for us to understand that the curse isn't something that happened while God stood by and watched in horror. The curse is God's doing. All of it. And as with all that God does, the curse manifests all that God is. God is all that He is at all times. The curse does not only display God's righteous hatred of sin. Romans 8.28 says, 
to God's redeemed people living in a cursed world that says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. That promise applies now. God is using even the curse to work out His compassion, grace, forbearance, and steadfast covenant love toward His people. We don't just get part of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We get all of it. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God put the curse of our sin on His own Son in order to free His chosen people from that curse. Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ now is freed now from the eternal penalty and the enslaving power of sin. Romans 5 says to us who have been declared righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God promises to use tribulation, the tribulation that we face in this still cursed world, to give us hope. He uses the pain and the suffering and the difficulties of this, this sin-surrounded, cursed world to keep us focused on our one true hope and not just to focus us on it, but to grow it up. To move us from perseverance to proven character to even greater hope. And that hope is the only one that does not disappoint. All my professional life, and I've been through a few different professions, <laughs> I have watched men and women, especially young men and women, cast about constantly on the lookout for the better job and the better situation. They think, surely the grass must be greener on the other side of the hill because it's withered and bug-infested over here. Surely, if I look hard enough, I can find a job without all that frustration. I can at least find a job where the things I spend all day trying to improve aren't opposing me. But God graciously tells us that our experience of frustration and opposition is universal to man under the curse. We're not supposed to have it easy this side of glory. Joel Osteen is wrong. If we did, our affections would be focused on what we have here. And that's not what we were created for. God is merciful. He will not allow us to find satisfaction in less than that which He created us to enjoy and to know. Less than Him. All too often, men and women who find themselves in difficult marriages conclude that a benevolent God would never expect them to stay in such a state of turmoil. And he certainly wouldn't expect their little innocent children to stay in such a state of turmoil. So in effect, they blame God and they bail out. They violate their marriage vows so they can go look for that ideal husband or wife because they're convinced that we're supposed to have it all right here, right now, when God clearly, emphatically repeatedly says He's not going to let that happen. So many people are frantically looking for a way to get back to the tree of life. But it is a constant grace 
that the only solace God allows to us as His children here and now is in the certainty that He is going to finish undoing the curse. We who belong to Christ will indeed get back to that tree, but not here and not now. Not until both sin and the curse of sin have been put away forever. And that's grace. It's grace. It's marvelous grace. Until that day, the part of God's work of redemption that you and I get to have right, near, right now, right here, is the most important part. And we get to keep it when these bodies die. And that's relationship with God and with the people of God. You don't get to have that perfectly because sin and the curse of sin persist at every turn. But if you believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior, as your Savior, you have already received the down payment of all the good that God has prepared for those who love them. That down payment is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you, teaching you, illuminating God's Word when you dig into it, interceding for you when you don't even know how to pray, empowering you day by day to live wisely and usefully to advance the kingdom that is most certainly coming. You don't get to have it all yet. You can't get all of it yet, no matter how hard you try. But if you trust Jesus Christ, what you've got is a lot. So stay tuned as we get to look at the rest of what's coming. Loving Father, thank You. Thank You for Your amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Thank You for Your design. A beautiful, flawless, marvelous design for all things. Thank You for the promise, Lord, that, uh, that all that we've seen happening in history since that day that Adam sinned has been moving in a very linear direction toward the making new of all things in Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for these beloved brothers and sisters that You give to us while we're here. For the blessed relationship that we have with them that we may together know You better and pursue You alone. We turn all these things over to You, Lord. We look forward to all that You have in store for those who love You. And we say, come quickly. Lord Jesus, it's in His name that we pray.